I'm going to figure out how to preach a sermon like that where we can all see each other. There's, there's meaning in it because we need to encourage one another. Well, I guess since, um, you know, as far as uh, logistics and feng shui go, since we can't do that right now because of the way everything's set up, here's what I'll have you do. Take the sermon with you today. Discuss it with one another as you sit next to one another at meals today. Uh, invite one another to go and break bread with one another. Talk to one another around the table about the things that happened here today, about the things we believe. That's why we're spending a little extra time on a verse. Instead of just passing through it, making a few comments, driving through, and then moving on to something else. Sometimes it's good to overview the Bible and to look at all of it. Read it in a year, read it in three months, whatever your time schedule is. But sometimes it's good to stop and to linger and to get all that we can out of a text. We've been doing that with 1 Peter 2. We actually started last week. We're going to come back to it. But every time we'll emphasize something there, something new, but something also connected to what we've looked at. Have you noticed that in 1 Peter 2, there are three scriptures quoted? Scripture quotes scripture. That Peter is well aware that there's a Bible. His Bible is what we call the Old Testament. He knows of the book of Isaiah. He knows of Psalms. And he draws from those around the theme of the cornerstone. And we mentioned the cornerstone last week. But something we didn't have time to pay attention to was the fact that for some, the cornerstone is chosen and precious. For God, the cornerstone is chosen and precious. But for others, it's rejected. Well, which is it? Because we don't like contradictions in our Enlightenment age, post-Enlightenment age. We don't like contradictions. Even though you get postmodern, we still don't like contradictions. Is it chosen or is it rejected? Let's look again at the text and we'll see what Peter says about that. As you come to Christ, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to Him, you then also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you, you're destined. You you are destined. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
The first scripture that Peter quotes is Isaiah 28. It's the idea of the cornerstone that causes people to stumble. The background of that goes back to the days of Isaiah, around the 8th century, somewhere in the 8th century B.C., 800 years before Christ is born. And it takes place in a city called Samaria. All of this geography is still there. Some of the names have been changed. But what you've got at the time of Isaiah, it, here's, the, uh, here's the Sea of Galilee up here. Here's the, uh, the Dead Sea and the Jordan River. This is that area that is still so much in conflict today. The nation of Israel is there. But in the, in the, in the days of Isaiah, you would have had a, a kingdom around the city of Jerusalem that then divided into Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And they're often at odds with each other. But Samaria, the capital city of this land in the north, Israel, was a rich and fertile land. They had, they had good crops. They, they, made, they made good wine. They had vineyards. They had everything just right. They came away out of the split with some good things. After all, they get the Sea of Galilee up here. They got the Dead Sea down here. As far as seas go, if your sea is dead, that's usually not a good indicator. But it's there. Samaria, though, is very proud of what they have. They're very proud about uh, their ability to get this right. They're a breakaway people. And so they've become quite proud about this. I want you to listen to a little bit of Isaiah 28 and hear what the prophet says to them. Because they had become so confident in their knowledge and their ability that they often felt like God was a bit childish in his simplicity and in asking them to follow him. Isaiah comes to them and tells them that their leaders are not more sophisticated, but their leaders are babbling like drunken people. Isaiah 28, verse 1, Destruction is certain for the city of Samaria, the pride and joy of the drunkards of Israel. It sits in a rich valley, but its glorious beauty will suddenly disappear. Destruction is certain for that city, the pride of a people brought low by wine. For the Lord will send the mighty Assyrian army against it. Like a mighty hailstorm and a torrential rain, they'll burst upon it, dash it to the ground. The proud city of Samaria, the pride and joy of the drunkards of Israel, will be trampled beneath its enemies' feet. It sits in a fertile valley, but its glorious beauty will soon disappear. It'll be greedily snatched up as an early fig is hungrily picked and eaten. Then, at last, the Lord Almighty will Himself be Israel's crowning glory. He will be the pride and joy of the remnant of His people. He will give a longing for justice to their judges. He will give great courage to their warriors who stand at the gates. But right now, however, Israel is being led by babbling drunks, priests and prophets, who reel and stagger from their intoxication. They make stupid mistakes as they carry out their responsibilities. Their tables are covered with vomit. Filth is everywhere. They say, who does the Lord think we are? Why does he speak to us this way? 
Are we little children, barely old enough to talk? He tells us everything over and over again. A little line at a time in very simple words. Well, since they refuse to listen, God will speak to them in very simple words, but this time through the very simple words of the tongue of foreign oppressors, an unknown language. God's people could have rest in their own land. God's people could have rest in their own land if they would only obey Him. But they will not listen. So the Lord will spell it out. He'll spell out His message for them again, repeating it over and over, a line at a time in very simple words. Yet they will stumble. They'll stumble over this simple, straightforward message. They'll be injured. They'll be trapped. They'll be captured. Therefore, listen to this message from the Lord, you scoffing rulers in Jerusalem. You boast that you have just struck a bargain to avoid death and have made a deal to dodge the grave. You say, the Assyrians can never touch us, for we've built a strong refuge made of lies and deception. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. Look, I'm placing a foundation stone in Zion, in Jerusalem. It's firm. It's tested. A precious cornerstone that is safe to build on. And whoever believes need never run away again. What's going on here is a nation that has become intoxicated by its own arrogance. By its own ability to feel like they're God's chosen people and they've got this figured out. As we said last week, there's a big difference between being right and being made right. God makes us right. That's much better than us being right and working furiously and frustratingly and nervously and anxiously to feel like we have to be right on everything. Samaria had reached that point that they felt they were right. After all, they had the best land. They were proud of what they had. They were proud of their rulers. They broke away from the fuddy-duddies in Jerusalem. They broke away from Jerusalem that thought they knew better. And they have their own capital. They have Samaria. They are secure. But the warning from the prophet, and by the way, I know he gets pretty graphic there with all that table talk. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. He didn't like the vomit on the table. I didn't write the Bible, okay? That's Scripture for you. But that graphic language is meant to wake them up. To wake them up to just how disastrous their situation is. That wasn't nearly as bad as all that talk of destruction. But the destruction and doom is not God just getting angry and deciding to show up into their, into their house and kick them around to make them wake up. It's the consequences of their arrogance and their intoxication with their arrogance. So, in contrast to that, back in Jerusalem, he's putting a foundation stone, a cornerstone, a reference point. And Jerusalem needs to line up against it, or it's going to suffer as well. They cannot become confident in their ability to get it right themselves. And Samaria needs to look to Jerusalem. All nations need to look to Jerusalem. This is what God had always intended. Setting up the king in Jerusalem, setting up in the temple in Jerusalem was God's first step at orienting the whole world towards 
a standard of justice and righteousness. So he continues and he says, look, I'm placing a foundation stone in Zion, a firm and tested stone. It's a precious cornerstone that's safe to build on. Whoever believes need never be shaken. I'll test you with the measuring line of justice and the plumb line of righteousness. And since your refuge is made of lies, a hailstorm will knock it down. Since it's made of deception, a flood will sweep it away. He's not talking about a literal flood. He's talking about the invasion from the north of the mighty empire of Assyria. Now, as powerful as Assyria was, and by the way, Assyria would, in the year 722, take over Israel. Take over Samaria. Samaria couldn't be proud. They couldn't stand against it. Even Jerusalem had trouble standing against it. But God had no problem saving them. God was not challenged by the Assyrians. He was more powerful. And it became a a message from the prophets of where real safety and trust is. Isaiah says that there's going to be this foundation set in Zion. And Samaria can choose to measure up, or it's going to be swept away. Jerusalem would even be in danger. Judah could be in danger. Here's what people in the ancient world do. You can ask yourself whether we still do this. They would trust in the alliances that they make with foreign nations. If we can make a treaty with Assyria, if we can make an agreement with Babylon, if we can make agreements with those other nations, then we'll be powerful. God said, don't trust in those as your foundation or your security. Trust in the cornerstone that I'm setting in Zion. Trust in the cornerstone, the king that I am establishing in Jerusalem. How often do do we depend on our ability to have security in our own borders? How often do we depend on our ability to have security in the rest of the world by what we do with other nations and through other nations? And do we sometimes put more security in that than we do in the cornerstone? When we do, at any time that we've ever done that, the danger, according to the prophets, is that the very alliance that you depend on to save you will come back upon you and cause your destruction. Isaiah was very disturbed that Hezekiah would trust in the envoys from Babylon because he said, now, one day, now that they've seen your wealth, they're not going to protect your wealth. They're going to come and take your wealth. They know what you have in your, in your treasure houses and they want it. Assyria is not going to defend. They're not going to protect, but they're going to come in and they're going to invade. Peter then is picking this up to say that the cornerstone that can create security can also be a stumbling block. Peter says there's two views of the cornerstone. One view is the cornerstone is chosen, precious, a refuge, a foundation. It's where we get our identity. Now, I encourage you as we're going to spend some time with 1 Peter 2 that you get the context around it. Peter addresses the Christians of his day and age as aliens and strangers. He says, I want to address you as people who live in a foreign land. How would you feel if you were addressed as people who live in a foreign land? 
Would you say, but wait, we're Americans. We're right here. We're in our home country. Are you? Is this ultimately our identity? Is this ultimately who we're going to be? It is an identity we need to be aware of. I'll grant you that. It is who we are. It's where we're placed. We can be at home in any country. But no country on earth is truly our home. Our identity comes from the cornerstone. Whose affirmation do we need then to be the followers of Christ? Peter is telling the people who are the church of his day and age that your identity comes from the cornerstone. That even though in the world you're sometimes regarded as slaves or you're regarded as people of of no status, and many of them in their world, the women... The servants, the slaves, they were, they were given second-rate status, maybe third-rate status in their world. I'm not saying it's right, but it's the way it was. But Peter says, that's not who you are. Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. I don't know what messages you get from the world. Maybe you get messages from those around you or from the world around you that tell you that you don't count anymore or you don't matter anymore. Or maybe you get messages that tell you that you are important because you have a certain list of qualifications and criteria and standards. The message from the prophets and the message from Peter is be wary of both of those because that's not your identity. Why do we think That we need a corporation like Starbucks to affirm our faith and put Merry Christmas on cups. You don't need them to give you your identity. They need you to give them $5 for overpriced coffee. That's not our concern. The voices in this world are not our concern. The treaties of nations that will not stand are not our concern. We must go to the cornerstone. He is precious. That's where we get our identity. And that is our refuge. Because all other things in this world, when Christ comes back to establish a new heaven and a new earth, nothing will be able to stand against Him and His power. So why would you invest in something that isn't going to last? You know, it's one thing. Oh, I'm going to get myself in trouble. All right. All right. I'm not taking... Let me just make a little comment. It's one thing to fly Confederate flags around on your truck, but I don't see anybody returning to Confederate money. I say that not to get into the controversy, but just to make a point. Why not? Because the money is valueless. Why would we invest in things that are not going to have value? And by the way, that's an easy target right there. But the things that you and I regard as so important, the money that we use, the credit that we have, is it, any, is it worth any more? Will it not become something that will not stand when Christ comes back? The question was asked today, why do we give? We give because these coins and these papers might as well be Confederate money when Christ comes back. And so we're taking these things and we're giving them to Him so that He can use them for eternal purposes. 
That's why we give. That's why we share. We can do that because we know who we are in the cornerstone. But, and by the way, these things offend and I have to worry about getting myself in trouble because the truth of the cornerstone, if I get myself in trouble because of my own ignorance, I'll apologize, okay? I'm used to that. I'm very familiar with that. But if it's about the cornerstone, I cannot apologize because sometimes it does cause people to stumble, The truth of Jesus Christ, the gospel, and the cornerstone can become an obstacle. I know this from my own experience. That when you try to live your own life and do not line up with the cornerstone, it will either become an obstacle that you have to try to get around, or it's going to become something that you're going to stumble on. And if you try to move that cornerstone out of your way you're going to end up getting crushed by it because you're not lining up to the cornerstone you're trying to fight against it and when you try to go around it you're just going to get yourself tripped up yes the cornerstone that is God's gift God's precious and chosen cornerstone to show us the truth can become that which is rejected and people stumble and are crushed by it. We, are, we stumble and we're crushed by it. Not because God is mean and vengeful, but because we're trying to resist that which God has given us as a refuge. What could be refuge, what could be a solid foundation of truth and true security becomes something that trips us up. Now the question... I don't blame you for asking a question. I hear all this, but what's good about any of that? What's good about this being a stumbling block? What's good about it is it becomes a refuge from what really trips us up. It becomes a refuge from the intoxication of our own arrogance. When we focus on being right, We can become so arrogant about that that we really don't listen to the words of Jesus. One of my teachers said that he knew he was in trouble when he was trying to help a church. And they had conflict. And they had some concerns. And he was trying to get them to understand what Scripture said about it. Gently, patiently had been working with them. He said he knew it was a warning sign, like the indicator on a, lot, on a car, lot, you know, car dashboard going off. It was the red flag. When finally someone stood up as he was showing them in Scripture, and he said, I don't care what Scripture says. This is the way we've always done it. Those words became a stumbling stone, a rock that crushes when it could have been a rock of refuge. When it can be a rock of refuge for us to say, this is what the Word of God says. This Word of God, Christ Himself is our firm foundation. There may be much confusion in the world. There may be a lot of things that are, that are questionable. But on this, the solid rock of Christ, we can take our stand. Now if you can say that, you don't have to get nervous. You don't have to get anxious. But you find your true identity. The good news of the cornerstone is that it can become a refuge from our lies and our deceptions. 
Sometimes it's hard to overcome things because we lie to ourselves. We tell ourselves things that aren't true. And we do that because the truth is often more difficult to deal with than the lies and deceptions that we build up around us. The the, the cornerstone becomes a refuge from that. When we build up our foundation on lies and deceptions, Isaiah the prophet says that when the really tough times come along, it gets swept out from among us. Jesus himself said that those who take his teaching and put it into practice are like a wise builder who establishes his house on a solid foundation. But those who do not put his teaching into practice. And by the way, it's real easy for us to gather in here, and it's a good thing that we gather in here and affirm these things. But the test, brothers and sisters, is going to be when we, when all of us, have to go out there and put these things into practice. And if we just say it in here, but we don't put it into practice, then we're building ourselves on a very flimsy foundation. It's the foundation that says, as long as I check in here every Sunday, as long as I show up and I dress up and I look like a Christian, I'm going to be okay. There's no foundation in that. The foundation has to be in Jesus Christ. Here's what I really like about the cornerstone. One of the things that will trip us up, one of the things that will cause us to be crushed is fear. And when we hear threats, and by the way, this sermon was written before the events of Friday night, the, the terrorist attacks in Paris. This was written at a time when, when we thought that, you know, Christmas cups for, well, they're not Christmas cups, whatever, Starbucks cups and all of that. We thought that was the biggest threat that we had. But there's a lot of fear again out there in the world. There's a lot of anxiety. And we worry about what could happen in our own country, in our own neighborhood. We worry about what could happen. And by the way, those events are never far off. It affects people that we know and love. And there are events that make it on the news, and then there are events that don't make it onto the news that affects people that we know and love. We've got missionaries in countries, and their situation has always been threatening. Their situation has always been risky. And there's always cause for fear. But if you are firmly established in the cornerstone that cannot be moved, it becomes a refuge from our fear, from the conspiracies of our age. Those conspiracies that will constantly have you running and trying to find insecurity in things that can never stand up to the real problems in this world. The good news is, is that that, cor- that cornerstone keeps us from falling for the fear of the age. The last scripture that Peter quotes comes from Isaiah 8. It's right next door to the scripture about the virgin being with child. And you will name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And this morning in our class, we discussed that. They, they, got the, they got the additional notes from the DVD this morning. But we'll talk about that sometime if you want. But this statement on Isaiah 8, when the prophet comes to the king to say, place your confidence in God. He's your refuge. 
But the king of Judah refuses and would rather trust in his own ability and in his alliances with others. But The word of God through the prophet for all the generations who will hear and who trust in God is this. Don't call everything a conspiracy like they do. I want you to hear this as a message saved by the prophet and his students. Okay? Are you you with me? I want you to hear this as a message for you today. Maybe you need to take this, cut it out, post it above your TV set when you're watching the news. Okay? It's a tonic. It keeps us focused. Don't call everything a conspiracy like they do. Don't live in dread of what frightens them. Make the Lord of heaven's armies holy in your life. He's the one that you should fear. He's the one who should make you tremble. And He's the one who will keep you safe. Hey, how about that? If you fear God, there's no reason to fear anything else. They might touch us. They might hurt us. But God's able to make us stand. He is not afraid. We rather can serve Him. So, don't fall for it. When the conspiracies, when the worries, when the fears are out there, don't fall for it. The one that we should fear, the one that we should come to, is also the one who in our respect and in our awe for Him, He also loves us. And He also wants to make us stand. Why else would Peter say, it's a cornerstone. Come to Him like a living stone. Be built up. Be made right. Be justified. Be set right. Be, you can have a firm footing. And you get an identity. Whatever you may think you are, once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God in Christ. Whatever you may think of your situation, you might think, I've got no, I can't get it right. I, I, there's no mercy, there's no forgiveness for me. That's true on your own, but in Jesus Christ. Once you had, did not have mercy, but now you do in Jesus Christ. So what we do in this moment is we embody that, that opportunity Won't you um, stand? Let's sing this song together. And if there's anyone who needs encouragement, let our shepherds up here know. Let's stand and sing.